I'm not going to get a show of hands, but how well do you think these describe you? Number one, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Number two, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Number three, if we have food and clothing, with these, we'll be content. Wouldn't it be great to live that way? Wouldn't that be amazing that whatever was going on in your life, whether things were going really well or really badly, whether you felt really um, like uh, your situations that you're in are good and everything you touch seems to be successful or everything seems to be a disaster, whatever was going on, you felt, I'm content. You're rich or you're poor, I'm content. You're satisfied, you're peaceful, you're content. Uh, today we're carrying on our Staying Healthy preaching series, and we're looking at how to be content. And this, isn't, this could sound a little bit like, oh, a nice lifestyle preach. This is nice. This is going to make me feel some good advice, a slightly better life. And I'm hopeful that some of that will be going on. But this is actually a command from God. God's commands are always for our good, but they're also very serious. This isn't like an optional lifestyle extra. God says that we are to be content. We're going to see this by reading from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Paul says, But godliness with, content is, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Are you content? Do you feel content today and in your life in general. Just to be clear, I'm not talking about uh, prophetic discontentment uh, with the world as it currently is. Maybe when you walked in, you saw the basics bank and you gave to that. You thought, God, it's not right that that there are people even in this city uh, who don't have enough food to live on. If you feel discontented about that, that's absolutely right. There's a prophetic discontentment that God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the personal peace that God wants to give us. Do you feel at ease with what you have? Is there a stillness in your spirit? Or are you constantly striving, running hard towards a finish line that's always just slightly past the horizon? There are always things that are on your agenda. You're thinking, I've just got to get that. I just need that. I just want to get to that point. See, despite being... Um, undoubtedly the wealthiest and most catered for society in the history of humanity, our society doesn't seem very content. I think if you ask people, do you have enough? Do you have all that you want? They would instinctively say no. If you look at how much of our economy is driven by creating a desire and somewhat satisfying a desire for things, you'll see our culture is not content. Even when you get something that's good, you're encouraged, but of course soon you'll need to get a new version of that. 
And that's kind of how things work. And it, if you're not thinking this through, you don't realize it and it just happens to you. Yesterday morning, I was going uh, with some friends for a walk uh, up, up into the, the Pentland Hills. A uh, short walk, uh, just a couple of hours. Uh, but I faced something of a dilemma before I went. Because obviously it might rain and it's probably going to be cold. But it wasn't freezing cold. Now I've got a ski coat for when it's freezing cold. And I'm confident in that coat that it will keep me warm really wherever I am, whatever's going on. But I wasn't sure it was that cold. But I've also got a waterproof jacket, much lighter, thinner, really good for just a shower in the rain. I would probably wear it in the summer, certainly in the spring. But the thing with that was, I was like, but that might not be, that might not keep me warm enough. So I've got one that might not keep me warm enough and one that's probably going to keep me too warm. If only I had a coat that was between those two types of coats. And do you know what? There are loads of people who want to sell me a range of coats within that massive gap in my coat range. Now you might laugh at that because you're like, I've got one coat and that's all I need. But there'll be something else for you that makes you think, I just need a bit more of it. I could, could do with that. There's something about human creativity, the way we innovate, the way we solve problems that's right and good. But when it drives us to a place where we're never content, and my observation of our culture is it's never content, then we are doing things wrong. Are you content? Are you content? Paul talks about those who desire to be rich. Is that you? He isn't referring to millionaires who want to become billionaires. He's referring to any of us who want more than the basics of life. Now we know that we're probably in the top 5%, maybe top 1% of the world's uh, wealthiest people, just because just the fact of the nation that we live in. And we might feel there's a difference in income between people here in this room, but then you, know, you look around the world, you look through history, like, I mean, we're right up there. But it doesn't feel that way, does it? Not many of us, especially if we were Christian, if we were a Christian here today, would say, I want to be rich. We kind of know you're not supposed to say that. But we still put our hopes and our efforts into getting what wealth offers. We know money can't buy us happiness, but we still have our wish lists. We want to be able to buy a nice house in a good area with good schools. We want technology that's fast and convenient. We want a car that's safe and reliable. We want clothes that look good and suit the many different situations that we're in. We want to be able to choose whatever coffee it is that we particularly like. We want to be able to buy organic and fair trade without worrying about the price difference. We want to be able to eat out with our friends whenever they invite us to. We want to have memorable holidays and experiences. We want enough savings to be ready for anything unexpected. We'd like a comfortable, preferably early retirement. And of course, at the end of all of that, we'd like an inheritance to pass on to others. Essentially, we want to have enough money so that we don't need to think about money. That's the way we say it to ourselves. I don't want to think about money. I just want to know that I can do those things that I want to do and not have to think about it. And we assume that the way to get to that point is by having loads of money. Another way of assessing whether or not we're desiring wealth is to ask this question. A guy called Paul Tripp came up with it. I think it's very perceptive. How is your present disappointment or discouragement a window onto what has captured your heart? 
How is your present disappointment or discouragement a window onto what has captured your heart? No one longs for things they don't want. No one thinks and obsesses over things they don't care about. So the stuff that fills your mind, the things that you're aware of, the things you're thinking, if only, if only, if only, that is what you're putting your hope in. That list I just went through, I mean, they're just typical, absolutely normal, fairly reasonable sounding middle class aspirations. And that's why many of us here have them. But I think verse 8 of what we've just read smacks that list. It destroys it. It slaps us in the face with the reality of what God would say to us, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And you think, no, no. If it makes you feel slightly better, the word for clothing uh, means covering. It could mean shelter, so it probably means home as well, although I don't think Paul had a home of his own. So we, you can expand it to that but that's still a lot less than most of us would aspire to, isn't it? Now, what Paul isn't saying is, this is the only thing you're allowed. But he is saying, this is all you need to be content. And you might think, okay, lifestyle thing, interesting, could go that way, could go this way. This isn't like, you know when you have a menu, you're in a good restaurant, and the menu, you just think... I don't think I can go wrong here. I think every choice here looks good. This is not what's happening with the choice I'm putting before you today, with the choice Paul puts before us today. There are two choices, and one of them brings life, and one of them brings death. And it is as stark as that. And when you kind of think of the two columns of what Paul describes, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says, and all this other stuff isn't. And that list that I just gave you of all those things that many of you, I'm sure, either want or have got. And Paul says, if you're striving for that, if that's what you're wanting, if that's what you're hoping for, living for, making sacrifices for, living for, if that is all in the category that Paul concludes with, that will lead to destruction. That will lead to ruin. It's not like it won't work out quite as well for you as if you'd chosen this one. This would have been a slightly better option. It's not that. Paul says, one is life and one is death. Let's see the arguments he makes. It's in the text. He makes three arguments. He wants to convince you. He wants to get you to a point where you can say, I've got food and clothing covering. I'm content. He wants to get you there. He makes a positive argument in verse 6 where he says, Godliness with contentment will satisfy us. He makes a matter-of-fact observation in verse 7 about the nature of life and death. And then he makes a negative argument based on the disastrous consequences of desiring to be rich in verses 9 to 10. I want to look at all three of them because all three of them are important and part of the way in which we can be convinced. He starts with a positive argument. He says there is great gain in godliness with contentment. He isn't saying at this point, be happy with what you have. So that's a kind of, that, that might, a lot of people around us would say, oh, that's what you want to be at. You just want to be happy with what you've got. If you, if you get to that point, then you're doing well. But that's not what Paul says. He says, godliness with contentment. What he's saying is, be happy and content in Jesus alone. That is what you need. Knowing Jesus matters more to Paul than anything else. He said to the Philippians, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's how Paul's living. This is not someone saying, I don't have much, but it's fine, because I've learned to live with little. He's not saying that. He's saying, I have Christ. And compared to him, everything else is ridiculous. Everything else is rubbish. Nothing else counts compared to him. This is actually what you were made for. You were made to find your satisfaction in God alone. And the thing that happens to us because we are sinful people, we make mistakes, we go the wrong directions, is we go looking for that satisfaction in other things. And it doesn't work, but we're fooled into it, so we keep going for it. But that's a later point. The point right now, Paul is saying, it's Christ who you are supposed to be looking for. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who discovered a pearl of great price. And in his joy... He sold everything else to have it. The early church leader Augustine said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That is true. He is the greatest good in the universe. Nothing is more valuable than him. Nothing is more beautiful than him. No one is as good as him. No one is as strong and as powerful as him. We've been singing about that this morning. And when you spend time with him, and when you delight in him, and when you learn to follow him and to hear him, you realise that this is true. There are Christians, I admit, who just seem to live a life of negation and negative. They just, they just seem miserable with it. But that's not what Paul's like. Paul isn't like, forget about all of that stuff and just get on with life. He's like, forget about all that stuff because I found the best thing. I've got Christ. That's why we worship him when we gather together. That's why we sing songs that are upbeat because he is wonderful. And we need to remind ourselves of that and enjoy it. He gave up his riches to be with us. He has shared his wealth with us. How wonderful is that? He has shared his wealth with us who instinctively hoard, who would keep for ourselves. And instead, he, knowing that about us, comes to us and says, I'm giving you everything I have. And he and the Father agree this for all eternity. All their riches, all their glory, all their might say, we're going to share that with that rebellious creation that we make. Just, it's just Amazing. And this is what preachers of a so-called prosperity gospel get so horribly wrong. When you hear people say, if you follow Jesus, he's going to do you good in this life. You'll have riches, you'll have wealth, you'll have the life uh, you always desired, going to make your dreams come true. Do you know what that does? It makes those things the end. It makes those things the point. It says God is a means to an end rather than the end of all our searching. And we sometimes tell that, don't we? We want to convince other people of how good he is. And so we say, well, God did this for me, and God did this for me, and God did this for me. And those are true, and those are legitimate, and they are signs of his love and signs of his care. But they are not him himself. They are not the thing to which the signs point. Our wonderful, all-satisfying God. And so when you hear people say, believe in Jesus and you'll become rich, you're like, why? Why? Believe in Jesus and you will have him. If I have Jesus, I have enough. No one is so beautiful, so patient, so strong, so loving, so wise, so good, so valuable. In his presence, Psalm 16 says, there is fullness 
of joy. All of it. That's what that means. I don't, I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know what matters most to you. I don't know what you're striving for. The only place to find peace and joy is Jesus. And as it happens, it's from him that we get the only thing that we do need. We want a home because we want to feel safe. And Jesus says, you can come and dwell in my house, in my father's house. We want a car to get us from place to place to place. Jesus says, I am taking you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We want clothes that fit us well and make us feel good, make us feel comfortable in front of other people. And Jesus says, I am giving you my righteousness. I am giving you my righteousness such that when you come before the holy God, he will look at you and go, perfect, beautiful, in you come. He's giving us that. We want to feel equipped for what we're going to do. And I'm already earlier. God gives us the armor, his own strength. He gives us these things. In his son. Jesus earned for us what we could never earn for ourselves. And gives it to us as a free gift that we receive by faith. By believing him. By When he says, I'm giving this to you. We say, yes, please. And thus we get it. That's the gospel. That's the riches that you need. The salvation of God. The forgiveness of our sins. He gives these things to us. We begin to experience them now. We have glimpses of them, tastes of them. Moments where, oh God, this is wonderful. I see you. You're beautiful, incredible. Sometimes momentary, sometimes longer. The more we spend with him, the more likely we are to experience that and to know it. We read it in his word. We hear it to be true. We put our faith in it. And they're wonderful moments. It can feel like a feast It is a sampler. It's a taster of what we are having in eternity to come. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's saying every item of wealth, everything that you would get through having more money is going to go. But the kingdom of God has no end. And the grace of God has no end. And the wonders of knowing him will never end, will be with him forever. That's the promise of God for you. That's what you can have, Paul says. That is what you can be fully, truly satisfied in. Then he says, matter of fact, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out of the world. I mean, that's just true. It just is. It's just the way things are. A rich person's funeral, a curious mourner once asked, so, how much did they leave? And the answer, of course, was all of it. All of it. When Job suffered great loss, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, And naked shall I return. That's life. Psalm 49 mocks those who don't get this. It says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, 
His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. How many of us envy those with wealth? How many of us think, ah, oh, that would be nice. I'd like it if I could do it. That would be good. We go for walks around. There's loads of really, really, really nice houses around where we live. And it's so tempting. Like, Man, that does look nice. For a bit of your heart to go that way. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, yet without salvation, without hoping in Christ, it's like the beasts that perish. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon noticed what folly it is to spend all one's time in gathering a heap to leave it so soon. Whether you're a Christian or not here today, you know this is true. You know that's what happens. No funeral has a, like a, 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 one of those trailer trucks attached to it, does it? No coffin ever comes with a whole load of other stuff. People used to do that in the past, but we look at it, and do you know what? We found the stuff. They couldn't take it with them. You can't take it with you. Now, this might make you think, well, life's pretty short. Better make the most of it. And there's a certain degree of sense to that. Unless someone comes from beyond the grave and says, this life is very short and it's not all there is. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. And he rose from the dead. He showed us there is an eternal life to come. And if you believe that, if you're a Christian, you believe that there's an eternity to come. It is ridiculous to act like this, like this life is all there is. I really do mean ridiculous. And when you think about it yourself, you're like, I've been worrying and thinking about getting a new pair of shoes. And I'm going to spend eternity with God. Or not. And what have I thought more about this week? Finally, Paul makes the negative case. So the positive case is Christ is all you need. The realistic, matter-of-fact nature of things is you ain't taking anything with you. And the negative case is chasing after wealth doesn't work. It won't get you what you want. He describes a process which starts in desiring to be rich and ends in disaster. He talks about ruin, destruction, all kinds of evil, wandering away from the faith. Now you're probably thinking at this point, I'm nowhere near those things. My life is not in ruins. There's not destruction. I'm not doing all kinds of evil. I'm not there yet. Paul says, yes, that's why it's a trap. Because no one says, I know what will ruin my life. Chasing after money. Let's do that. No one does that. No one thinks, how, how best could I ruin my life and the, and the lives of those around me? I think if I, make, if, I, if I shove everything out of the way, apart from making more money, maybe that will do it. No one thinks that. It's a trap. Because something catches your eye. Or someone, or something you see happening, you think... I don't have that. I like that. Something that catches your eye will then capture your heart unless you deal with it. And something captures your heart, you then make decisions based on that. And the way you make decisions is then the way you live your life. And then that's just what life is. And it becomes impossible even to, even to remember what things were like before that thing captured your eye, captured your heart, captured your life. And then... Paul says, 
comes destruction. You just want a few more of those nice things I listed earlier. You just want to spend less time worrying about money running out before the month does. You just want that bit more status and influence. It would just be good to have some more security for those who depend on you. I mean, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with providing. But there is everything wrong with not being content. If you're not content with what you have, you want more, and that becomes the criteria by which you make your decisions. It requires you to make compromises, to do the things you wouldn't maybe advise other people to do, but it's okay for you to do it in this case because you just need to get over to that point. It makes you use people or envy them or rival them rather than see them as God's creation to be blessed. It means you have less time for maybe family or friends or church life, and you call these decisions sacrifices, and that makes you feel better, and you forget what a religious word that is. Because when you are making anything other than God the basis of the decisions you make, you have put him off his throne in your life. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And Paul says it will destroy you. This, Paul says, is why people have wandered away from the faith. We thought they were Christians. They came to church. They seemed to be praising God. I don't know where they are recently. I haven't seen where they Well, they said they were just busy with work and then they were just a bit more busy with work. And they're gone. They're gone. And Paul says destruction follows that. First commandment, I'm the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods beside me. The last commandment, do not covet. Do not go after other things. Because when you go after other things, they become how you make your decisions. God gets pushed off his throne. It's the first commandment again. It's idolatry, Paul says, and it is deadly. And all you wanted was a peaceful life. All you wanted were a few more nice things. And this is what you get instead. Here's the other miserable thing about seeking to be wealthier. Even if you succeed, you won't be satisfied. Envy, rivalry, bitterness, jealousy, these are the fruits that loving money produces in you. This is what your life becomes full of. And you think, no, because if I get more money, then I'll be happier. Well, the Bible doesn't say you will. Actually, most people with money who we know aren't, or striving after money aren't. Thousands of years ago, King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And it's true, because when is it enough? No peace. No contentment. But you know what? Even if it worked, even if you got so much wealth, you're like, I'm actually really chilled, thanks. This guy keeps saying it's going bad, but actually he should come round to my pool and I'm actually really enjoying my life. Wealth and possessions are irrelevant to what really matters in God's assessment. So it's not just that they won't make you happy, because they might kind of make you happy. I'm going to guess 99% of us, it wouldn't work. But even if it did, it's irrelevant to what God cares about. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 12. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. This is a great story. 
I'd like to be this man. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. I'm just going to upgrade. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy is living the dream. He is living the dream. If you're like, do you want to be this person? I think everyone here is like, yes, I do want to be this person. He has more than enough. And he's built some really nice barns. And he just can just relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, what one word is God going to use to describe this person who is living the middle class dream, who is living how so many of us here would want to live. He's got enough and more. His life is beautiful. What does God say to him? Fool. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's what Jesus says to you, to us, to all those who are laying up wealth for themselves. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This, Paul says, is the deal. This is the choice. This is what's before us. And I've tried, and I hope you've felt it, that you don't have to have loads of money for this to be a thing for you. You might have nothing, and this is the thing for you. You might have loads, and it's not the thing for you. Because it's the desire, it's the lack of satisfaction, it's the lack of contentment, it's, the, it's that God is just not enough for you that is the ruin. How can we avoid this trap? Well, I've, I've put the gospel before you today that you might feel that. I don't want to live that way. I don't want that to happen. How, where is that happening in my life? How do I get rid of that? These are three things I think can help us escape this trap. To give thanks, to give away, and to give up chasing after the wind. Let's give thanks. What you need is what Jesus offers you. If you're not a Christian, Jesus offers you everything you need today, which is his rescue, himself, forgiveness for your sins, and a right relationship with God now and forever. That's what you need. If you're a Christian... You've been given that freely. That's what you need. You've got it. Give thanks for it. You didn't earn it. It was earned for you by Jesus. He lived perfectly for you. He died in your place. He rose to new life. He did it for you. So give thanks. So praise his name. So be thrilled that this is your life. You think, I I just don't feel aware of God as much as I want to. Praise him. Thank him. Put your mind to it. Rehearse over again and again and again. God, you've saved me. You've rescued me. You've taken me from a place of disaster into a place of life, from darkness into light. You've done that to me. You just have to tell yourself this again and again and again because you forget so easily. Sing about it like we've done this morning. Savor it. Enjoy God and his goodness. Enjoy what he gives you. It's okay to give thanks for what you've been given. Your father is a generous father. You think, I've, I do have more than food and some clothing. 
Well, Paul says just a few verses later, 1 Timothy 6, 17, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there is a way in which, like, well, God, you, you gave me this. You've put this before me. It's okay. Thank you. And you thank him, and that changes something in you. Because you think, well, how do, I, how do I avoid this trap? How do I have something more than a bare house and enough food for today in the cupboard, but not become what you've described? I think these kind of questions will help you. Do you think more about the giver or the gift? Are you more aware of the thing or the one who gave it to you? Because the thing is just supposed to point you to the one who gave it to you. Are you more aware of what you've been given or what you want? We often, lots of it, I have, I have like a, a wish list because occasionally people are like, birthday or Christmas, what would you like? It's like, well, I, I can't often think about it, so I have a list. But if all I'm aware of is that list as opposed to the list of things that God has done for me and his goodness to me, day by day by day, as well as forever, then I'm in trouble. Because all I'm thinking about is the next thing, and it's just not enough right now. Are your prayers only requests and never thanksgivings? Those are some of the things we can do to give thanks. Then give away. Uh, This is not foolproof, but if you give stuff you own away, and then don't go out looking for more, I think that can help desire the lesson, that it can lessen the desire for things. Because you're just, you're just learning to live with less. And you can bless your local charity shop, you can bless people around you who need the things that you've got that you don't really need. This is actually very on trend. So um, you can talk about this with other people and they'll be like, great, I've read that Conmary book as well. This is, is this sparking joy in you? And you'd be like, if you don't, this is a book that's all about getting rid of loads of stuff because it'll make your life easier. So you'll be on trend for a moment, but then you'll say, yes, so I've been giving that kind of stuff away. I've also been giving loads of my money away so that I can't buy things. And that's when you'll go from being on trend to not really being on trend. <laughs> so it may, you may not want to say it just in that way. But so you give stuff away, I think that's helpful, but give money away so that it hurts, so that you feel it. Sacrificial giving actively fights against desiring wealth in two ways. If you give at the start of the month, you won't have as much money left to spend it on stuff. Do you see? Because it's gone, so you can't do it. And secondly, when you invest in what God cares about, in his church, in kingdom enterprises, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when it gets put over there, then your heart goes over there too. So give thanks, give away, and finally, give up chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9 to 11. I became great and surpassed all who were before me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Later on, he says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We're told that to spare us from making the same mistake. Give it up. Stop running after what you will never catch up with. You can never catch up with this. The next verse after the bit I read, Paul says to Timothy, flee these things. Don't make a deal with these things. Flee these things. Repent where that's been going on in your life, whatever area it is or 
feeling or just that movement you felt. I just need some more. I just want more. I'm aware of what I don't have. You need to repent of that. Say to God, you've been gracious to me. And here I am alive and saved. I have all I need. Give up chasing after the wind. Do practical things that help you to do this. It's amazing how much more aware I am of what I don't have when I'm in a shop. It's remarkable. It's amazing how much more aware of what I don't have when I read websites or magazines that are all about things and consuming. It's odd, isn't it? If I'm removing myself from that, if I'm noticing these thoughts for what they are when they come into my head, I am hopefully avoiding this trap. Because there are loads of people who are in the trap saying, come and join us in the trap. Come and walk into our trap with us. And God says, don't, don't you dare. It can be helpful, just want to say, it can be helpful to have people who you, you say to them, I know I really like this. I know this is what I would be striving for. Could you help me notice that, please? If you're married, your spouse is the person who can do this for you. If you are or you aren't, to have friends who know you well. And when you talk about stuff that you buy, or when you come, and uh, I bought this recently, and they're like, why? That's a helpful friend. You want them to say, wow. Maybe sometimes they need to say, why? You're welcome to do that to others. (laughs) This is a very helpful statement I found. I'm going to wrap up just now. Uh, from the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization, they were making a statement about simple living, and this is what they said. We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscious thought and decision by us, together with members of our family. I think that's very helpful. I think it's worth chewing that through in your small group this week and thinking that, what does that look like? How does that mean? Because it's complicated. Let's finish now with those statements that we started with. Paul's life, he's not just one of those kind of people Jesus changed him. He changed him in a moment, and then he changed him over time. And so he could say, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He'd say, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. If we have food and covering, with these we'll be content. Do you want to be content? Do you want to know this peace And to no longer be chasing after something you'll never get. Go to God. Give thanks, give away, give up chasing after the wind and come to Jesus. He says, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Not more, not enough. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why don't we now in prayer come to Jesus and ask him to do this for us? Lord, help us to see things clearly. Help us to see things as they are. 
that which is fading and will not last and that which is eternal and can never be lost. Lord, help us see our hearts. Help us see the state that our hearts are in right now, where we aren't content, where we are striving, where we're not satisfied, where you aren't enough for us, where we're ungrateful, where we're more aware of what we don't have than what we do. Lord, the stakes are so high. They absolutely couldn't be higher. Don't, please, oh God, don't let us wander away from the faith because of this. Don't let us go to ruin and destruction. Have mercy on us. Rescue us from the traps that we've fallen into and that we've made for ourselves. Right now in your heart, repent where you know this has been happening, where you know this has been true of you. Small scale, big scale, it doesn't matter. Say to God, I'm so sorry for that. Lord, we want to flee from these things and to you. Jesus, our great saviour, the one who gives us rest. Help us to find rest in you and you alone as we give thanks to you, as we give other stuff away so it can't get in the way, as we put our treasure in you and your kingdom. That you might be glorified, Lord God. That the world might see in us the beauty of Christ and his complete sufficiency. Amen.